Hello and welcome to another episode of the Golden Hour Podcast brought to you by the Polar Pro Studio. I'm your host, Dave Mays, and today we're here with Eric Jackson. Eric, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. Dude, this is awesome. I love your work. Uh, we found each other on Twitter. Eric is yes. a photo retoucher, Photoshop master, photographer, and I think you dabble in all sorts of other creative things. Is that right? <clears throat> yeah, um, I'm kind of all over the place. I would say my main things, especially over the last few years, has been uh, retouching, but also uh, entering as a, a freelance colorist. And I've been a photographer since before I was a retoucher. So uh, my interests are kind of all over the place. That's amazing. So yeah, I mean, it's actually interesting to hear you say that you you dabble in coloring as well as a colorist. That kind of makes sense because anything that you would learn in a retouching environment in Photoshop would, I would imagine, translate over to video in Resolve, I assume you're doing coloring? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I've been, I've been technically studying color for as long as I've been studying photography, but it was very much just kind of an offshoot interest that I, you know, was just curious about. Um, so I was, I was messing around in Resolve back before it was an NLE and like you could, you know, do your full blown editing in it. It was just purely there to color. Um, yeah. And so it has evolved quite a bit since I first started messing around in it. Um, but yeah, now that I'm kind of pursuing it, uh, being able to work on different people's projects and stuff, uh, it, it's been really interesting to kind of utilize how big and advanced a tool it is now uh, compared to when I started but it's also surprising how much it, a lot of things from Photoshop carry over in, in the way that it's structured, uh, the way that you might go about color grading. So it picks up pretty easy. You know, that's fascinating you say that. I studied actually to be a traditional artist. I was wanting to be uh, an animator, an animator, I said that weird, a 3D animator. So I went to yeah. like art school. I didn't finish. I went for like a year and a half at a um, at a community college, but I was studying like in art classes. And I remember learning about the color wheel and understanding the opposites and the, the, the triangle of color and like the complementary colors and all that. And I learned that when I was young and before I even started video. Then once I started doing color grading, I realized all the techniques that I learned as like from painting and understanding the color theory and the color wheel completely applies to color grading as well. Like if your image yeah. is too red, you have to know in your mind that the opposite of red is green. So you want to pull some green in. And that was all stuff that I learned in college with painting. It's crazy how it just yeah. translates over to all sorts of different uh, career paths. No, absolutely. Um, Cause I mean, at the end of the day, you're kind of, especially as a retoucher myself, but you know, with color grading, you're playing with perception and that that's pretty much your whole game is to make sure that, um, you're not throwing a person's perception off of the image uh, and they're not getting distracted by anything being too crazy or off. Um, so you're kind of playing a psychological game just as much as like uh, a color theory game. Well, the, one of the main reasons why I had you on the podcast here is because um, all you got to do is just go to your website and immediately you're just overwhelmed with unbelievable images with unbelievable people. We've got Bruno Mars. We've got, um, yeah. do we have Kylie Jenner here somewhere? I don't know. Uh, we've got all sorts of different celebrities that it seems, I assume you've retouched these images 
total magazine covers, by the way, as you're listening to this, I'll put a link in the show notes and you can actually view this uh, website. It's ejackson.com, but he spells it J A C S O N. Um, go check out his work. Cause that is, it's just mind blowing. The, the, the clarity, the cleanness, the sharpness, and the precision of the things that you're working on. It's really quite incredible. And as soon as I saw your work, I was like, holy cow, I got to get this guy on the show. Um, because we've I, never I had really a appreciate that. Oh, dude, you're so welcome. Um, and by the way, you're in Arkansas. So you're a Southern boy like myself out here in Nashville. So yeah, yeah, man. I, I have a couple friends in Nashville as well. Um, but yeah, I've been here my whole life. That's awesome. Um, if you ever come to Nashville, let me know. We'll get some hot chicken together. It's like my favorite thing ever. You know, I'm planning a trip out there next month. Yeah, we should definitely link Dude, up. Dude, yeah. Seriously, hit me up. Let's do it. We'll we'll do a follow-up here. Uh, maybe maybe we'll do a video on my actual channel. We could do like a retouching-based video. That'd be super fun. Oh, that'd be sick. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Dude, heck yeah. Oh, I'm super pumped. Um, <laughs> so can you just walk me through your career. I mean, it's when you look at your portfolio, it's really impressive. Um, how did you get started in this? It's kind of mind blowing when you see the the work that you've done now. I want to hear the journey of how you got to where you are. Uh, well, naturally, it was from being moved away from something completely different. Um, so I was initially going to school for engineering um, in California. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, What's cool? I'm, I'm, go to, by the way, I went to Harvey Mudd College. Okay, I'm it's, not familiar uh, with that. Yeah, it's a it's a small little uh, private institution and kind of a, a consortium of of different colleges in Claremont, California. Um, but they specifically were a, a kind of a STEM based school. Like you went there basically to major in either you know math, uh, engineering, chemistry, bio computer science, um, some combination of the few, they had a a few different majors, but it was like 10 majors max and like 800 students at the whole school. It was a very small school. Um, but I mean, me kind of with my upbringing, that was my background. It was what I was good at. Um, I got a really good scholarship to go there and it was interesting because I, school had always been fairly easy for me. So I hadn't given much time or thought really to what I wanted to do in the future. It was kind of just treating everything like the next step. I got mm-hmm. to that school and they were like, no, you got to want this like pretty badly. <laughs> and <laughs> I kind of I just realized, you know, everything that I was doing was cool, but it wasn't really what I wanted to devote my life to. Uh, and it was hard, like, you know, trying to balance like stuff I was interested in with a a pretty heavy course load. Um, But yeah, basically I stayed there for a year and a half and then uh, I took time off to kind of just see like, did I want to continue that track? And I basically didn't at the time I was also exploring like photography um, and it was really starting to be a pretty solid outlet for me. Mm. Um, So once I took that time off, it was one, it was the first bit of time I'd had where I didn't have like school breathing down my neck. And <laughs> I was literally just like, I was, I was working uh, a job. Like, yeah, I started working at Best Buy back then. Um, so I was working full time at Best Buy and like 
basically just living. And Mm. I really like that. Um, I liked kind of the lack of stress to a certain extent of just kind of like living life and working. Um, And it was also giving me a chance to explore how I felt about photography, how I wanted to pursue it. Mm. Um, So I ended up, uh, I went to school for a semester after taking a year off uh, in state. Cause I knew I wasn't going to go back to try to go back to that school in California, but um, yeah. yeah, I went to a school here in state for a semester. I was still working full time at the time. Um, I hated it. I got really depressed cause I couldn't shoot anymore. And it was kind of just like the clearest moment of, okay, this is, I want to pursue this cause yeah. I'm clearly happiest here. Um, I'm still stimulating my mind. This is what I want to do. So I left after that semester, dove headfirst into it and, and tried to start uh, treating photography seriously. Um, and from there, it was kind of just a, a learning experience. I'll be the first to admit, I probably dove headfirst too quickly um, back then because I was, I was pretty intent on making photography my career because I was just like trying to focus on getting a career under me. Um, but I don't know these days, like my advice to people is like, no, just take it easy. Like if you don't have to jump in full on, you know, find where it fits, where it makes sense. But, uh, back then, yeah, I, I was trying to dive head first, um, start a business, get a client base. Um, and I had a friend at the time, uh, is a friend I closely work with now, Caleb Shane, Mm -hmm. um, amazing photographer. And he taught me a lot of things back then. Um, and so he kind of just like put me on, uh, over the years. And so I was learning a lot with him and from other colleagues in my state. Um, and over time I ended up, uh, where did we get to? I think it was 20, 2018. I want to say, um, I first set up like, uh, first had a studio in, in downtown Little Rock and I was working out of there, um, up until the pandemic hit. But yeah, I was basically shooting out of there for, uh, local boutiques and, uh, just doing all kinds of different photo shoots. But I was mainly at that point, I had moved from primarily, you know, on location work to primarily in studio work. Uh Um, and I had a little bit of like retouching uh, clientele that I was building as well, but it was definitely smaller. At that point, it was primarily photography. Uh, retouching was something, a skill that I built up out of necessity for my work. Um, uh-huh. But, you know, when people recognized that I was good at retouching, they would, you know, uh, seek to hire me. And that kind of gave me the opportunity to treat retouching uh, as another form of income, but also explore working as a retoucher as opposed to working as a photographer. So enter the pandemic 2020. Uh, it's like, it's like three months out from my lease ending. And I was pretty certain things were going to kind of like, it was going to take a while for things to get back to normal. So yeah, I shut things down, moved, went to remote, and that's where I like really dug my heels into retouching uh, straight on. And that's basically been my wave ever since. So the pandemic is the, the reason for your retouching work. The pandemic is the biggest reason. The catalyst. For, 
Yeah, it's the thing that that pushed me like heavy into it being my primary thing. Um, and awesome. yeah, that's been it's been great. Um, just because one, it made me realize how comfortable I was with that working relationship, uh, especially you know as a retoucher, I'm working with other photographers, production companies, occasionally the brands directly. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're kind of articulating their creative vision in a different, like at a different stage of the process, which is really interesting. So tell me what retouching is for somebody who doesn't even have a clue what that is. I mean, my guess is you're doing Photoshop work, but can you just walk Mm -hmm. me through kind of what that job entails? Yeah. So uh, basically what will happen is um, a client will reach out to me. They'll have images that uh, they either plan on shooting or have already shot that they want to send to me. And essentially my job is to refine those images. Um, so part of that is uh, it, I may get sent like raw files and need to do some raw preparation first, uh, which my, my software choice there is capture one pro. Um, okay. but yeah. most of the time, you know, I'll get like TIFFs or PSDs that I'll open up in Photoshop and get to work on. Um, but essentially, I mean, when you say refining, cause the work that comes in, it can be portraiture, it can be, um, product that it can be environments that I'm having to maybe composite together or something like that. Uh-huh. Um, so it ranges, but I mean, a lot of the tools you use end up being the same across the board. You're, you're using like 10% of Photoshop's tools to do 90% of the work. Um, but you're just there to eliminate distractions. Cause at the end of the day, images, viewing images, we don't view them the same way we do in real life. You know, if Mm. you see an image on your phone, on a screen or whatever, you have the opportunity and you're most likely going to stare at that image for a good five to 10 seconds or longer. That's not what we do in real life. If I stared at you for the next two minutes, you probably think I was insane. So (laughs) it's about it's about kind of mimicking the lack of realism we get to experience in real life with a photo. And that's, it's a weird way to classify it, but it's kind of what we're doing. We're trying to guide the eye to what's important in the image um, and not let the eyes get distracted by stuff that's not important. That's really all it is. It's a great philosophy. It's almost like you're trying to tap into what people's uh, kind of imagination or what they remember about somebody. It's like, if I think about somebody that I just glance at, that really stands out to me. Maybe they're just wearing a really interesting piece of clothing or whatever. They're just an interesting person. I'm, I may have a skewed version of them in my head. Cause that one mm-hmm. thing that they wore stood out so vividly. But then when you see them in person, it's like, Oh wait, you actually don't look like what I thought, but my yeah. brain like came up with this imagination. So you're trying to find those things that kind of enhance reality a bit. So you're, you're not, it's, yeah, you're not creating bit. reality. You're kind of enhancing it. Exactly. Yeah. And you're kind of, you're, you're choosing or not so much choosing, but you're kind of narrowing the focus a bit uh, because on, on the flip side of removing distractions, sometimes you're bringing to the forefront things that are really important. Maybe it's the texture of some clothing or maybe it's someone's eyes. Like it, it can vary, but the point is you want people to focus where the artist is intending for them to focus um, and not get distracted by, 
you know, stuff that just really doesn't matter if it's a, a blemish or dust particles, that kind of like, it can be anything, but um, that all really is up to the artist at that point. So if I go on your website, how much of this is retouch and how much of it is your own photography? Is this mostly, is this a, a blend of, of everything on your website? You've got uh, retouch, so, the whole section. Yeah, I assume that's On my retouch. website, you'll see the retouch tab and that's, uh, by the way, like, what you're looking at currently, and hopefully I'll have uh, an updated website by the time the podcast goes live, but what you're looking at right now is probably like a year old at this point. There's a whole bunch of work I haven't added to the site, That's but awesome. I do have things separated. So I have the the retouch tab, which is just kind of some of my uh, my best of in, in, in my retouching up to uh-huh. that point. And then, uh, and the other tabs are my own photography. So there's some beauty work, there's some portraiture and fashion work. That's um, amazing. But yeah, so all tell of it me, ends up getting retouched by me regardless. So tell me some of these uh, celebrities that you've worked with, because it's really quite impressive in terms of the, the photos that you've retouched. What are some of the ones that stand out to you? Um, so there it's interesting. So like, if we look like the big three that are up top that I just mm-hmm. have there because who's not going to have these celebrities up top. Right. Yeah. Um, so these kind of came to me at random and that's the interesting thing is like you build these relationships and you just don't know what's going to come through the door. Um, yeah, I mean, but uh, tell it, tell the, we have a majority audio listeners. So if you could, actually describe those celebrities. Um, oh yeah. Who are okay. that? And also I kind of forget some of their names. I recognize their faces, but I personally don't remember their names on some of these. Yeah. So the first image is of Charlie Sheen. Um, <laughs> and this was just, um, I don't, I don't remember what the context for the photo shoot was. Uh, but a friend of mine shot these photos and basically the the first image on the left here, it, it was just a, a, a individual portrait of him, just make him look good. He's got surprisingly good skin though. Like the man looks great uh, at his age. So there wasn't too much work I had to do there, um, but it was mainly just like lessening some wrinkles, kind of like making them less defined. Mm-hmm. Uh, the image on the right, we had to do actually a little bit of uh, extension work there because where that lamp is, Um, it was actually right at the edge of a wall and there's this like long hallway, um, to the right there. So we ended up having to extend that wall over. Um, and then on the left side we had where his, his coat is flailing out to the side. We actually just, there was someone holding him. So we had to remove that person, rebuild that section of the wall, um, and then just kind of clean up the floor. Um, but yeah, it just results in some interesting looking images. Again, I, I don't remember even what the context was for this shoot happening, but it just, it happened. Um, and yeah, then, and, we'll, and by the yeah. way, all, uh, everybody who's listening, you can either look at your phone right now. If your apps, uh, if your podcast app supports it, you may be able to see the the cover art of this podcast right now. We'll have the images that we're referring to. I think Apple podcast does it. Overcast does it. A couple others do. I don't know if Spotify does, but um, if you want to follow along, I'll include this in the video uh, on YouTube. So just go to youtube.com slash GH pod. If you want to watch the video. So anyways, there's 
because this is a very visual aspect of what we're talking about, obviously. So yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's see the next image. So this was Khalid, Millie Bobby Brown, and yep. I forget the streamer's name, but he's a, uh, I believe a Twitch streamer. Uh-huh. Um, and it's going to drive me crazy not remembering who he was, but uh, this was actually uh, for a Samsung release. This was, they were doing, uh, this was a year ago, I want to say last uh-huh. winter. Um, they really, you know, they release like a ton of phones every year. This sure. was one of their phones I love uh, how- that was coming out. Does that have anything to do with the phone? I don't see the phone. Oh, is he holding it? (laughs) I think he's holding it, but this was mainly, this was kind of the hero image for the rest of, uh, so this wasn't the only image that was a part of this campaign, Mm -hmm. Um, but there was a series of images with these uh, celebrities. So we have Khalid, Millie, Bobby Brown, and Myth, the Twitch streamer. Um, and basically what we had to do here was a composite. All of these different images were shot at different times and we needed to take all of them and put them on the same background, make them look like they were all shot together, but also, you know, give room for graphic designers to do whatever they wanted to do to the image. So basically just taking, um, you know, a bunch of images of them, some plates of the background, doing some extensions and rebuilding, copying over shadows, um, all of that good stuff basically to make this one image. Well, now when you mention that, like as I stare at the image and I think about the fact that it's composited in, I can kind of see how it's possible, but I didn't even consider that that wasn't just a photo of the three of them in a, in a room because the shadows are so convincing. And at, f- at first glance, when you look at it, you're just like, oh yeah, I mean, there they are. How do you, I feel like the grounding of it and the scale of things could get tricky because basically, you know, some of them are maybe taller than the others. And like, how do you deal with scale and kind of the weight of, you know, one guy sitting in a chair, one's on the ground, like you chose to put shadow here and not here. Like that's really tricky to do. So part of it is you want to use as much as you can from the original images as possible. So like, for example, each person um, had like each person in their shadow is from their images. So uh, Khalid and Myth were shot, were both shot on these blue backgrounds, like these deep, Mm -hmm. uh, almost navy blue backgrounds. Um, but their shadows were still intact. So I was, I basically did channel masking to pull their shadows along with them and bring that over. So when we did the pink backdrop that Millie Bobby Brown was shot against, uh-huh. um, we built that pink backdrop out and brought their shadows over. So that was kind of key to make sure that was all good. The rest was a lot of trial and error. We were sending images back and forth to see how we liked the scaling. And, and this is where uh, we left off, but it was kind of hard to be certain because I mean, some of these images were shot at wide angle, like, somewhere between 24 and 35 millimeter focal lengths. So there's some distortion as to the scaling of, of their physical proportions and trying yeah. to match that up with how they look in real life. Um, you know, we, we got it as close as we felt was, was a, a good place for it to sit. Um, but yeah, I mean, off Amazing. jump, 
if uh, if you don't think it's a composite, that's kind of the point. And <laughs> it, it, as long as it's not pointed out, you don't have to nitpick it. But you know, yeah. there's inevitably you can start seeing stuff if you know what to look for. But most people don't know. And if anything, having it be again, like you said at the very beginning of this conversation, having it sort of more of a dreamlike enhancing of reality kind of just drives the point across of whatever the what the client is wanting. And in this yeah. case, they just wanted a clean image of all three of them that popped and was in the color space that they wanted it to be in. So yeah. if that's the case, super success. Um, Absolutely. Now here's the, here's the question I have for you as a Photoshopper myself in a very amateur way. The only things I ever Photoshop are thumbnails, <laughs> but it is Photoshop. Yeah. Um, and by, and by the way, I, I would, I would like to comment about uh, thumbnails uh, later in this interview. Cause I think you may be the perfect thumbnail artist and you don't even know it. Um, oh, <laughs> or, you, or you do definitely right that. I don't know it. I've looked at thumbnails and gone, I don't know how people think of this stuff, but I see a <laughs> lot of cool thumbnails on YouTube. Um, so my question for you is I'm noticing that the, the way that you cut them out, it's like very clean, very sharp. Walk me through your process of taking an image and in in this case you're taking two guys and cutting them out of a you said it was originally a blue background so you're yeah are you just using the lasso tool the magnetic lasso tool do you use um do you just go by hand do you have a a a wacom tablet or something like how do you get it so perfect because i feel like i get lazy sometimes and like i just maybe that's it is maybe you actually care more and you're actually going over each thing perfectly but it's just so uh, impressive how you got every fold of the fabric and the hairs so perfect. So part of it is, I mean, I'm a big proponent of using what tools are available to, to aid you from the speed perspective. Um, but not everything can be done quickly. Uh, so basically the way I would start is I can't remember if at this time that that particular photo, I think so, the Photoshop update where you have object selection uh, mm-hmm. was out. Um, but okay. typically for something like this, at least now, um, I start with the object selection tool, which builds a pretty good like rough mass to start. Um, then nice. diving into select and mask um, and essentially just eating away at the edges and kind of getting like cleaning up the edges uh, where the object selection may have been off or not, you know, just kind of rugged. Um, so I will, yeah, just go by hand and clean around, um, for it, it does also have a a tool in there for refining the edge for specifically for hair. And so it can get really fine detailed selections around the hair. And then I can also clean that part up a little bit. Um, obviously it's not going to be absolutely perfect. There will, I mean, I've yet to see mass from anyone that's just absolutely perfect if the the hair wasn't absolutely perfect. Um, but especially around clothing and stuff, it's pretty easy to get a solid clean, uh, mask out of it. Um, the parts that you have to watch for, um, being that these were different color back- backdrops is obviously you're also going to have those color reflections come back yes. onto their clothing, onto their skin. Um, and so going from a blue backdrop to a pink backdrop, very different reflection, uh, 
uh, on the clothing. And so that had to be managed once I brought it over to uh, the pink backdrop. And essentially just if we, like I remember on the shoes, there was definitely a, a blue tint to the, the top of the shoes. And it was either neutralizing that or uh, using a, a brush and color blending mode to like bring in more of a, a warmer tone um, or pinkish uh, reflection and, and kind of just match that. You can wow. start to restrict it a bit if you want with the um, kind of luminosity masking that, that layers will let you do, like the layer style section. Um, uh-huh. So you can just essentially allow yourself to refine and refine more where you're acting upon the image so that you can get, you know, as clean um, an impact as possible. Totally. But from there, I mean, um, yeah, you kind of start broad and then just get nitpicky. And there's <laughs> not really, there's not really a way around that. Um, and I find that's probably even with, when I was first learning retouching, a lot of the things that you were seeing online were kind of ways to do things quickly, but Mm -hmm. it was kind of at the cost of doing things cleanly. And ultimately for me personally, I was willing to spend the extra bit of time to figure out how to do it cleanly and then just practicing it faster at it. Um, But yeah, I would say probably the best advice I ever got on retouching was few things are difficult. They're just tedious and time consuming. Mm. Um, but at the end of the day, pixels are pixels and you're just pushing them around. A hundred percent. I, in my YouTube journey, uh, one of the things that I tried to do was, um, just add a lot of graphics, a lot of, uh, cut ins and text and sound effects and things. And often it's like, well, if I didn't include these things, I would be done much faster. But I know like if I do this, it'll make it more entertaining and it makes my content stand out and it makes it unique compared to other people because I know I'm forcing myself physically to do this. I don't want to do it. And it's just called simply work and it's hard work. And often you have to actually do work that isn't enjoyable. And, but then the end product is so much better and you end up getting more work from it. And in my case with YouTube stuff, you get more views or you get more people interested. Like, Oh my gosh, I love this stuff. It's like, yes, those two days of editing were worth it. You could have done, got it done in a day if you really wanted to, but you know that extra ten percent, that extra ten or twenty percent, really goes a long way, and that's what makes you stand out against uh, anyone else. Yeah, it's it's the beauty of being able to get a clean result. For me, it's also like you know when when we're retouching, we're we're going through uh, rounds of revision as well. So we're sending this stuff off, seeing if the client has more notes on anything maybe they didn't address in the first, when they first sent it or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, I'm also kind of playing the personal game of like, okay, let's see if I can get them to not have any notes this round. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, Good luck and with so, that, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, everyone has a different standard of what perfect is for them. And so you're obviously you're always going to miss something because it's either they're not going to see it up front or you're not going to see exactly what they're seeing in their head uh, yeah. when, when they want you to fix something. So there's kind of, there's the basic stuff that you're always going to take care of with an image, no matter what. Um, but then there's stuff that is really up to the, the client and what exactly they have in mind for the final image that you can't just, you don't want to necessarily assume off rip. 
Um, but ultimately, you know, you get, especially if you work with more and more of the same clients and, and they become, you know, repeat customers, you uh-huh. get a feeling for their eye and you totally. get to the point where you can go, oh yeah, I, I know you like to usually change X, Y, Z, and I can just go ahead and do that. Yeah. Um, okay. so, but yeah, ultimately I, I love the refinement aspect of like getting to the end of the process and seeing basically it just taken up that extra five or 10% that it needed uh, to, to be finished and and clean. So let's move on to the next one, which a lot of people may recognize it's uh, Bruno Mars and Cardi B from the track. Please me, I believe is the, is is this the single art or is this? Yeah, that was the cover for that single. Yeah, so um, if you're familiar with that song, which I'm sure many of you are, um, the cover art for that is the next one. Can you walk me through that and tell me about that process? Yeah, so um, this was this was shot by uh, my friend Caleb Shane. This was after he had moved out to L.A. Um, and he had gotten the opportunity to to shoot them for the cover of this single. Um, and so he convinced them to to bring me on as a retoucher for this. That's okay. And yeah, it was honestly one of the easiest retouching jobs though, because I can't stress enough, like good makeup artist and already having great skin, like you're yeah. you're leaving your retoucher not that much work to do. So <laughs> and, a, and a good uh, photographer too, obviously. So. Yes, uh, an amazing photographer. And so yeah, Cardi and Bruno have uh wonderful skin great tonality. Like there's hardly anything to fix. What I actually ended up doing though, um, was this cover was shot on, um, gray and I ended up Ah. doing a big mask out and essentially cutting them out of the gray so that they could be put on. Well, I think at the time they hadn't decided what background they were going to put on before they just went white. Um, yeah, but yeah, essentially I needed to have them completely cut out as well as their very eccentric clothing. And so that was probably the hardest part of the whole thing. Um, sure. And Bruno's the, hair the is very fine. Yeah. He's got yes. some curls yeah, that are very fine. The curls and everything. Yeah. Um, but other than that and kind of these, uh, these parts hanging off of Cardi's sleeve, like that was yep. interesting totally. to go around, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that was, that was honestly the hardest part of it um, was, was it was just kind of tedious. Like I said before, it, that's what it ends up. Being. Yeah. But that was a standout moment. That was, they were the first celebrity, anything that had come across my computer screen, you know, Um, for me to work on. So that was kind of a really big moment of when that came out and especially just seeing it everywhere. Like it was on in times square and it was on the cover of Spotify, like just seeing all the places that the image ends up. And that was kind of my first time having experience like that. Uh, and for me, it was just like, Oh my God, those files were on my computer. Yeah. That kind of gives me chills to think about it. I can't imagine it's like, yeah, you once you once you said once you send it out and the client approves, you mm-hmm. wait a couple of weeks or whatever, and then boom, there it is, and it's like everywhere, and everyone around you is like talking about it and tweeting about it or listening to it or whatever. The freaking video has over four hundred million views on it. Yeah, uh, I just looked it up while we were talking, and that's got to be such a cool feeling to like look at the image, 
and see it like at a store and be like, yep, there's my, there's my, (laughs) there's my clone (laughs) stamp right there. Yeah. There's my mask there. Yeah. Like you can see your, it's basically your fingerprints on that, on that photo, you know? Yeah. That's that's, really That's a lot of what it feels like. Um, so yeah, that was, that was a big moment and kind of the start of a lot of things too. Um, being seen by, by other clients as well. Um, so it just, yeah, it kind of got the ball really rolling. Um, and also kind of showed what was possible as a retoucher. Cause that was still, that was pre pandemic. So that was still back when I was primarily shooting. Um, okay. and yeah, it was yeah that was kind of when it mm-hmm. came out. So, yeah. So that was my first glimpse into, uh, what it could be like, like the kind of stuff you could end up retouching for and you just, you never know. Mm-hmm. But it was also uh, quite difficult to sit on my hands and pretend it didn't happen for like, I think I worked on that image two months before that song came out. Oh, okay. So I just couldn't, <laughs> like I was NDA, I couldn't say anything. And of course, yeah. uh, I had a roommate at the time and I couldn't tell him he was just like, like I I was working on it and I had to hide my computer screen from him, but (laughs) you probably thought you were doing something else. (laughs) Oh yeah. I was like, when, when the, when it officially launched, um, I was like out. And so I just got a text from my roommate and he was like, Cardi B, that's who it was. And I'm like, Oh, I guess it's, I guess it's out now. (laughs) That's awesome. Are there any other projects that maybe aren't on your website currently that that you really enjoy doing that you could discuss and maybe if it if if it's not on the website maybe you could send it to me or or point it to me on your Instagram account Actually, or something? Yes, so this past week um was the launch of one that I'm really excited to have worked on. Um there's a brand called Pierre Moss um uh-huh. and they did a collaboration with Reebok. They designed uh some clothing for Reebok and they just launched it this past week. So if you go to the Pierre Moss Instagram page, uh, uh-huh. that's P Y E R Moss, uh, you'll see all of the imagery from that Reebok side of the campaign and easily the most interesting, eclectic, colorful images I've oh, ever cool. worked on. So um, all these, literally everything here on this, um, account yeah, so looks like it's a new account see, they have so they cleared everything off of their instagram uh for wow. the launch of this collection because this is their fourth collection uh their fourth and final with with reebok um so all of these still images are the ones that i worked on excluding this most recent one which is uh cut from uh the video uh i was gonna say it looks really low the- res yeah, yeah, it yeah like it's that. like screen caps from from their campaign video. Yeah. Um but but yeah, anyways, the other the, images here are are everything that I worked on just recently. Dude, look um, at you you're getting into some high fashion. This is amazing. <laughs> yeah, uh the like these last actually few weeks have been kind of like some really cool fashion stuff. And that's like a lot of my work is is what you might generally call like commercial and and somewhat advertising. Um and so the kind of like super eclectic stuff comes in fashion and the stuff I've been working on recently has been really cool in that lane, but this is the most recent one I can at least share with everyone. Dude, um, this is legit. We'll I'll definitely be able to this. post on my Instagram and, and website soon as well. 
but it was also just really special because I've been following Pierre Moss and, and specifically Kirby for several years now. I, I think he's just has an incredible eye um, in fashion and is really kind of, for me, like that, that next up guy. Um, but yeah. yeah, the stuff he's been doing is incredible and getting to like now work on a Pierre Moss campaign is, is nuts. And I, I relished it. It was great. Dude, congratulations on landing that. And it looks amazing. Um, everybody can go see it. This is certainly some high fashion stuff. If you're not uh, familiar with this type of thing, but it looks it, it, the, the coloration of these images do have kind of like a, a filmic look to it. Was it shot on film by chance or is that all just in post-production? No, it was, uh, it was shot digitally. I want to say on medium format, like a, one of the Fuji, uh, medium format cool. cameras. It looks but, great. Excuse me. Um, yeah, it was the look of it. There was a few images we were trying to, well, I was trying to figure out the color for, but I, I want to say they were using maybe like a LUT or something as a, as a base for the look of it. But yeah, very interesting. I mean, I know just the production design alone kind of, they had a lot of different things going on with the lighting and the sand, just how mm-hmm, yeah. yeah, the sand on the ground in a psych wall with some yeah. RGB lights. It's really cool. Yeah. Um. So they they really went all out just on the total production from from how they built the set to how the final grade ended up looking on the images, um, and then you know just polishing it up with the retouch. Uh, it was all cool. really really cool. Cool. Everybody go check it out. Pierre Moss, uh, P Y E R M O S S. Um, and also too, while we're at it, go ahead and follow, um, <clears throat> follow Eric on his Instagram, which is, uh, Instagram.com slash E Jackson, E J A C S O N. Um, I don't go on Instagram, so I'm now following you on Instagram <laughs> That's awesome. because I'm a Twitter guy. We we talk I to each other on Twitter. I will try to post more things on Instagram, but I'm also I'm more a Twitter guy these days. Instagram is I've had a weird relation with a uh, relationship with Instagram lately, but Twitter has been the source of some very fun conversations as we both know. I'm interrupting this podcast briefly to tell you about a brand new product from Polar Pro that we just released called the Pivot Shoulder Rig. Now for listeners of the Golden Hour podcast, if you use the code GH25, you can save $25 off of this new shoulder rig. Pivot is an ultra compact shoulder rig specifically designed for run and gun shooting. It aims to give a versatile experience and provides a multitude of shooting positions for different scenarios. There's a quick release plate system built in, an adjustable shoulder pad, tool-free height adjustments, different rod extenders that are your natural rod size for mat boxes and follow focus, and seven grip angle adjustments on the handles. And when you're ready to go home, the shoulder rig actually collapses down and it weighs under four pounds, has compact storage, and can totally fit in most camera bags. The thing that I love about this shoulder rig is that you can really configure it in different ways. You can use it like a traditional shoulder rig. You can use it pressed up against your chest in a very kind of run and gun scenario. And it doesn't require any heavy counterweights to use it. This is the first time that Polar Pro has entered this market and they've thought this out very heavily for travel filmmakers and 
Honestly, I could see this being used a lot in a YouTube scenario as well. A lot of the cameras these days have IBIS built in or in-body image stabilization, but there's nothing that beats that natural fluidity that happens with a proper shoulder rig. So if you wanna save $25 off of the Pivot shoulder rig, then make sure to go to PolarPro.com and in the coupon code section, type out GH25 and you can save $25 off of the new pivot shoulder rig. All right, without any further ado, let's get back to my interview. One of my good friends, Drew Photo. Are you familiar with him by chance? He's big on Twitter. Drew yeah. Photo. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, guys friends with a couple of my friends and like model friends and photographer friends. I've yeah. never, I've never met him or anything, but yeah, he he makes some really great work. And he does everything on an iPad. Uh, although I think he's just now got, he got a PC and he's doing, he's finally opening up uh, Photoshop every once in a while, really? but he still does the majority of his stuff on an iPad with affinity photo, I believe. Interesting. I yeah. tried, you know, I tried to switch to affinity photo uh, from Photoshop and I gave it a solid month of my time and I just couldn't do it. It was, there, there's a few things specific to Photoshop that I use that I just couldn't like break yeah. away from or work around. Um, but and they'll, they'll continue to develop it too. You can kind of have faith that as you pay your subscription over the next decade, they will probably come up with some sort of crazy machine learning feature that you don't even know exists yet. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. Adobe is going all in on the machine learning stuff, which I, I think is smart from, from, a business perspective as well as a creative. Cause I'm, I'm a tech enthusiast myself. And so I'm really intrigued by all of that stuff. And I like to try it out the first chance I get to. Um, so, you know, I, I like it from that standpoint, but from a business standpoint, it's really smart of them to develop things that can't be knocked down to like simple code. It's like, no, we've, we've done all this machine learning against all these millions of images and stuff. And, this is all, this is what it knows now. That's, that's uh, as proprietary, I guess, as you can probably get <laughs> in, in software. 100%. Now, one of the things that I'm noticing with your work is that regardless of the skin tone, the skin tones are like perfect every time. And you may have a certain grade that you're going for, but are there any specific um, tips or techniques that you have in, in terms of making sure that the skin tone is looking natural, pleasing. Um, but then you're not like, sometimes if you affect the skin tone and get that to look good, it might affect the color of other things in the image. Do you mask simply just the, the skin tone and get that perfect and then do other things with other areas of the image? Or I'm, I'm just curious so what your workflow is there. That's one thing that I've largely unified my photo in like video grading workflow with is that I try to work as generally as possible. Um, and so one particular guideline I go by is um, skin tones have to be right. And they, and by right, I mean, like I said at the beginning, we go largely off perception, right? Mm -hmm. Um mm -hmm. So for the human eye, being technically correct doesn't mean all that much. Uh -huh. we re there are things in life that we recognize, and skin tone is 100% one of them. If skin tone is off, it can throw an entire image off. And on the flip side, if skin tone is right, you can have the wonkiest looking thing you've ever seen, and your mind will kind of justify it if the skin tones are right, because it, it'll just be like, well... <laughs> 
this the, the person's right. So I guess there was just all this weird stuff going on <laughs> and your mind will That's just amazing. accept it. Um, yeah. So that for me, at least skin tones are everything. Um, well, I noticed that I kind of centered <laughs> <laughs> that I centered the whole, the whole grade around it. And then I just try to like balance it. Like my favorite tools to use for color um, are so in capture one, I primarily u- will use levels because um, levels lets you adjust black point and white point um, and then the balance with the midpoint. And so I can create these color biases and uh, the black and white points and then move the midpoint to essentially get, because the skin tone generally just lives in the mid uh, midtones. So move that midpoint balance the way I need to, to bring the skin back into range. Uh-huh. Um but it's also embracing, especially lately, I've been embracing the um, the variety that's in people's skin tones. Skin tones are made up, made up of reds and magentas and yellows and all these different colors. And for a while, I was like intent on trying to lessen some of that, unify it a bit in, in, into a tighter range. Uh-huh. Um, and I've especially as I've journeyed more into film emulation, I've really appreciated kind of all of the different um, tones that'll, that'll show up in skin. And so now I try to just let them live in peace basically, and just make sure that they're present um, mm-hmm. and that there's not too much of a big shift in the entire tonal range uh, that throws everything off. Um but yeah, I mean, that's if, amazing. If I had any advice at all. It's like, make sure your skin tone's right and everything else you can, you can justify, you know, you know, it's funny you say that, but for years, Canon, um, had kind of in the industry, like some of the best skin tones compared mm-hmm. to other camera brands and specifically Sony cameras notoriously had terrible skin tones. Um, and I heard it said exactly what you said, actually, that Sony was the engineers at Sony were tuning their color and their sensors scientifically to be accurate. But if you mm. were to look at a Canon camera and pull it into um, like an RGB parade or, or look at uh, like a waveform, you would actually see a high pull in the reds and the oranges. And it was actually incorrect. The image was not correct. It was yeah. creating a false reality and it was pleasing to the eye. They designed the sensor to be slightly off to not yeah. mimic reality, but to have this perceived perception that you're speaking of. And now I, I, I think Sony has actually kind of learned from that. And now they're doing that themselves as well. The, all the new bodies have much better uh, skin tones. I've noticed. Yes. So. Yeah. And, you know, I think like, Cause you'll see that uh, Canon kind of skews like red magenta, Sony skews kind of yellow green, um, Nikon skews kind of more yellow. Uh, so everybody kind of has where they, they sit and where they base, you know, their color science off of, which I would be remiss to say, cause this is a hill that I, I die on all the time, but I do, I am also intent in saying that when we shoot, especially with stills cameras, if you're shooting raw we're more debating how your raw converter interprets the color than necessarily the camera brand because uh. 
everything yeah. about the base color science of a camera, if you're shooting raw, can be reinterpreted completely. Um, at this point, any camera you've bought over the last decade is capturing a ridiculous amount of information. And mm. so it's more just kind of reshaping that matrix to the way that you want those colors okay. represented if you want to go about that process of calibration. But um, yeah. there's a lot more control in the raw converter now than there is really in the camera's like sensor in terms of how that colors end up. And um, especially as a stills editor, I'm, you know, I've come from a video editor perspective. Mm -hmm. So if I'm just getting an eight bit 4k 420 S log from the older Sony cameras, I pull the S log into rec 709 and get some contrast and saturation in there. And everything just looks awful because the skin tones are bad and it's not raw. It's a low bit rate and I can't really yeah. play around You'll with it. You'll start getting banding and all that stuff. But with the yeah. Canons in the past, with with the video at least for me, with Canon cameras, straight out of the camera, even in the log image, it seemed to be more pleasing. And again, yeah. that's not necessarily the case anymore, but um, that's interesting you say that about the raw conversion because for stills and with raw, you can basically do whatever. Yeah, which I mean, that's an experiment that I've actually been running for a few years is uh, capture one differently from Lightroom uh, they use ICC profiles uh, for their camera profiles. Well, the ICC profiles are basically LUTs. And so coming from the video world, you're like, well, I know what LUTs are. And you can you can really, you know, you can reshape a LUT however you want to. There's actually some really great softwares for that. And so what I started doing was experimenting with uh, creating essentially LUTs that allowed me to use the color science I wanted for a, a particular camera and just basing it off of the calibration uh, that Capture One has. Um, so my most recent experiment was um, using the, the Kodak 2383 filmlet that DaVinci Resolve has uh, uh -huh. and adapting it for use in Capture One. So I could still use all my tools, like all my controls in the raw converter but it's interpreting the scene data like Kodak 2383 would. Wow, that's um, cool. And based off of the camera. Um, so that's been really interesting because it kind of solidified what initially was just a theory, which was that it's all the color can be whatever you want it to be um, uh -huh. and, and made that a reality. Um, so I'm just experimenting with that more. And it's also allowing me to learn a lot more about the internals of, of capture one as I go, but it does also show kind of where we are in the camera space. At this point, we, we have a bunch of cameras that capture a ridiculous amount of data. And realistically, we just got to get good at messing around with it. And <laughs> I'm personally of the belief that at this point, your camera purchase should be less about what the sensor does by default uh -huh. and more about what the camera does in the sense of if the color is the thing you can change the easiest, you should make your camera decision based off the things you can't change. Like you can't change anything about how fast a camera shoots or how it autofocuses, whether or not it has IBIS, that kind of thing. So if you like, you know, everything about a Sony A1, but you want the color science of an R5, I would just buy a Sony A1, rent an R5, and shoot uh -huh. some test charts and match them up. And there you go. An A1 with R5 colors. 
but I, <laughs> I don't, I don't like, it's like, it's thousands of dollars for these cameras. Yeah. And you know, if there's something you really love about a camera that you can't change and you like about another camera that you can change. Yeah. Save your, save yourself the, the stress of that weird thousand dollar purchase and, and change <laughs> that one thing. It's like a day experiment, you know? Um, well, what's your favorite camera to work with? Like when you receive images, is there one file that you really take a liking to from a certain body or brand? Um, I'm just, I would say at this point there's two. Um, I've gotten my fair share of D850 files, uh, from Nikon and I Uh love those. And I've gotten my fair share of R5 files and that R5 is something I don't I don't know what's going on, but it's it's gorgeous. Not wow. just the the look of it, but also the lenses. Uh, you're you know you're getting to experience uh, what they have in their lens lineup with these images too, and they are just spectacular. Um, the R5 wow. has been a very very convincing consideration for me lately because I'm I'm trying to decide. Uh, on a new camera myself. And so I don't know. It's like <laughs> uh, I'm kind of battling that thing of like from a technical standpoint, I, I feel like I like Sony right now better. Um, mm-hmm. But there are some aspects uh, to Canon's lineup that are, are really enticing right now. That's amazing. Yeah. we My, my shooter Connor just bought an R5 recently I'm shooting this on the C70 and that's my primary camera right now, which only shoots video obviously, but, um, yeah, they just had the raw update, didn't they? They did. Yeah. And I was hoping they would enable, uh, raw stills, even though it's only 12 megapixels, but they didn't, they did not include raw stills. Oh, that's too bad. So I would have That'd to, uh, camera. Yeah. Although, I mean, I guess the R5C is sort of the true video photo hybrid that people would want, but yeah, um, that, that, that's the one that, that has the fan attached now. Yeah. So you can yeah. totally shoot your 8k raw video and then switch it over and take pictures if you wanted. <laughs> Good I don't Lord. think anybody 8K needs raw, especially non R3d as well. Like R3d has great compression, so mm-hmm. you can actually shoot 8k and, and it's not, too bad to work with, but Canon's raw is not good for video. <laughs> yeah. Those see like Canon's raw, the, the structure of it reminds me a lot of just like the open source cinema DNG. Like mm-hmm. it kind of feels like Canon packaged cinema DNG for themselves. I'm not Probably sure did. if it's <laughs> true, but it, it operates a lot like that. I heard a rumor. I hope it's true. I doubt that it is, but I heard a rumor that Canon may be considering buying red, which would be very, very interesting if they did. But I don't know if that's true at all, but that would be so cool. Wouldn't it? If R3D was in cameras and Canon cameras. And then if you had dual pixel autofocus on a red camera, that'd be so awesome. Yeah. I mean, the Komodo kind of has that, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, that's really good autofocus. Yeah, so when I reviewed the Komodo and started comparing it to other Canon cameras, it did look very similar. And there were actually rumors that it was the R6 sensor in there um, because the 6K sensor, exact same megapixels. Hmm. It's got phase detect um, and it's got a similar color science. So there's some rumors out there that say, and it's got an RF mount on it. So yeah. there's some rumors that say that Red was sourcing their sensors from Canon. So that'd be interesting. Um, that would be interesting. 
So capture one, I'm curious about capture one for you. Like mm-hmm. what is it that draws you to it? And um, I have some friends that are using it. My friend Tyler Stallman uses it. Um, yeah. What is it about capture one that you like? Uh, you're already paying a subscription to Adobe, so you're getting Lightroom. So why are you also paying for capture one? I'm curious. I'll tell you. So I switched from Lightroom to Capture One back in 2017, I believe. Uh, I I was it was recommended. I because Capture One was the industry standard. Someone was like, "You need to use Capture One." That's for if you if specifically you, for retouching or for portraiture. Uh, for anything commercial photography related, specifically if you wanted to tether. Um, yeah, because I at the time I hadn't tried to tether to Lightroom, but I had always heard it was a nightmare. And with Capture One, it is plug and play; like you don't even have to think about it. Um, but the main thing was just like in general as a software, I was told, "Hey, this is this is the industry standard. You need to know this software whether you use it or not." So I switched to it. Literally, just did the like thirty day trial and used uh-huh. it for a month. And after that month, I was hooked on it. And the reason I was hooked is kind of, I don't know, now it's kind of, I feel bad admitting it. I don't like curves. And Lightroom at the time, I don't know what they do now, but at the time, curves was the primary way you were color grading anything in Lightroom. And I hate You don't like curves on women though? I'm just kidding. (laughs) Well, that's a different conversation. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I I couldn't stand it in Lightroom, and Capture One gave me more than one way to color grade an image. Hey, you have levels, mm. you have the color wheels. Oh, um, like a it, like in a color grading uh, for video, you got the three wheel. Yes, or? yeah, uh, you got your your uh, shadow, midtone, highlight wheels, um, and you can Very control. Cool which they don't work exactly the same way as a, a lift gamma gain uh, knob structure, but uh-huh. it's close enough to like give you a lot of different capabilities. Um, but it was just the fact that I didn't have to use curves as a primary tool for grading an image inside of like Capture One without having to go to Photoshop. Because uh, in Photoshop, I wasn't using curves that much. I was primarily using levels or the color balance tools, selective color. Mm. There's a lot of... I think better color tools that aren't so hyper specific um, in the way that you have to adjust them. Um, curves for me, just I mean, even with color grading and uh, in, in Resolve, I I use the Hue versus curves quite uh-huh. a bit, but just the regular uh, RGB curves, not really a fan. That's just not my preferred way to work. Um, so that was the main reason Capture One kind of caught my eye. I was like, okay, I have options here. But then it was on top of that, it was being able to completely restructure your environment. So you can move everything around. You can decide mm. what tools are on the uh, are, are upfront and viewable and what tools aren't. It also has way more tools than, um, than Lightroom. Like one of my favorites is the skin tone tool, which I'll often use if I get raw files that come in and sometimes even on, on TIFFs. Um, you can basically select, you know, a skin tone area. I can, now that we have layers in Capture One, I can draw a mask over that area, select that skin tone and start to make specific, like really minute adjustments that I wouldn't necessarily want to do in just like the HSL panel. 
Uh Um, And you can even go as far as to unify certain aspects. So I can unify the hue to like narrow in the hue a bit or the saturation range. If I have, you know, you, you can have like really wide ranging saturation levels on skin and you won't necessarily want to have that. In fact, I, I think it throws skin off uh, more than like different hues do. Uh-huh. So like you can use the hue saturate or sorry, the saturation unification to like bring that closer into range. So whatever you have masked um, kind of matches in saturation more. Wow. You can also do it with luminance, but it starts to look weird on skin. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, there is a lot of particular tools that just kind of gave you a lot more options for completing an image inside of Capture One. Uh, And it got to the point where there are some instances where I've retouched entire images inside of Capture One just because the things that I had to do uh, were simple enough that I could do that. Like I've I've retouched headshots in it where it has a good healing brush and clone stamp brush. I can create my own dodge and burn layers in there. So I can do a complete basic retouch just using the tools that capture one has. And it's great because if I do a retouch in Photoshop, I'm left with like a two to four gig file. Uh That's a TIFF. Whereas in capture one, I've just got, you know, whatever 20 to 40 megabyte file that the raw is and like a little metadata sidecar file. That's it. So it's super Uh light. It's working on uh, unrasterized data. So it's literally calculating your changes in real time. It, it's oh. just clean. It's a, so it's a really nice work, way to work if you can you know, do a retouch that way. So again, maybe for uh, somebody who's not familiar with RAW and JPEG, basically kind of in Lightroom, it's, it's great. If you're a wedding photographer and you've shot 3,000 mm-hmm. images, and you just want to cull through them, delete the bad ones, do some presets, find a couple, you know, all these images in this, in this one room look the same. So I'm just going to copy and paste all the same white balance and exposure yeah. uh, things. Lightroom is great at that in terms of mass images and just going through it and organizing it. My, uh, my cousins are wedding photographers and they never even open Photoshop. They never open it. They only use Lightroom and they're dealing yeah, with thousands of images. I can't imagine <laughs> opening Photoshop for a wedding. Yeah. Because I, I, I do know some photographers who do like some minor retouching in Photoshop, but I'm like, you have like a thousand to 2000 images you're delivering and you did minor, even minor Photoshop work. Just the act of opening 2000 files in Photoshop. <laughs> I can't imagine. Yeah. So, but, um, but yeah, when you that's pull a into, beautiful thing. Yeah, it is. And but um, but what you're saying, and by the way, and so and then the other workflow would be pulling it into Photoshop. But once you're doing that, you're manipulating the pixels. It's it's a it's mm-hmm. an image that's essentially baked in, and now your dodge and burn is not actually affecting the. It's not a raw image at that point, right? It's a TIFF file, so you're yeah kind of playing the, with pixels. Like working on the TIFF is basically the closest you can get to all of the information that the raw has when you export it at those settings, but it still has its limits. You can still push it too far. Um, So the beauty of a raw file is that nothing's been finalized. Nothing has been 
rasterized. Mm-hmm. So it's all ones and zeros waiting to be manipulated and interpreted. And inside your raw converter, you're essentially going, okay, I want you, when you export this raw file, these are the calculations I want you to do. I want you to raise the exposure plus one, up the contrast plus 10, pull the whites down wherever they fall, minus 50 or whatever. And you do all those little adjustments. And then when you finally export, it goes and runs that calculation on the raw file for the final export. But until you actually do it, nothing's been changed, nothing's been altered, and you have all of the calculable information that's available in the raw file to manipulate as best you can. Um, and so it is, in my opinion, the ideal way to work. And I've, I've said many times, there's a few tools that if Capture One ever adds to their program, I could straight up drop Photoshop for like 60% of my work, um, just being able to do it in Capture One. Um, so yeah, I, I do try to work on the raw file as much as possible, especially for some of the heavier things. But obviously there are things like, you know, compositing or very just uh, intense cleaning things that I have to do in Photoshop that is just much easier. It would be uh, cumbersome and a hassle to do in Capture One to not really save me that much in terms of mm. color fidelity and all of that stuff. So it's kind of just measuring like what's what's useful, what what is helpful enough to do it. But yeah, if I can if I can run through a, a retouch in Capture One, if it's simple, I will absolutely do it. Um, do the you, results are just very very clean. Do you find that you actually enjoy the app better too? Is it is the UI experience better and, and the overall uh, speed and performance on your machine better as well? Have you noticed mm-hmm. any difference? I would say back when I switched, yes, but 2017 is a different time than 2022. So I don't, I I can't really compare to Lightroom what it is today. I've heard Lightroom is faster now. Back then, Lightroom was super sluggish. I was working catalog only because that's all you had with Lightroom. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, that's the other thing. Capture One has catalogs and it also has sessions. You can go you know, a heavy catalog, or you can go really lightweight with sessions, which is what I do. I, everything runs through a session. Um, but yeah, was, Lightroom was just, what does that mean by the way? Is, is oh, one yeah. is for like a, a thousand images and the other ones for like one image at a time or something or. Right. So, so a catalog is essentially going to let you, um, like if you make a Lightroom catalog, it's, it's basically like a file system. It's where all of your images are stored. When you open the catalog, it loads all of the previews for the catalog, which uh-huh. means the larger, like if, as you import more stuff, you can keep track of it and keep organized. That's great. But it means every time you open that catalog, you have to load all the previews for it. Um, it's the same case in Capture One. Uh, Capture One's catalog system, as far as I understand it, because I really only used it for a little while, um, works the same way as Lightroom did. So when I switched, that didn't really differ for me. Um, sessions, what that allows you to do is essentially create one kind of pocket for just the thing that you're shooting or working on. So like if you want to tether and capture one, if you're shooting, um, you're going to plug in your camera, you're going to open up a session. And so every shot that you take goes into the capture folder uh, in your session. And then you can just work on the images there. It's only loading the images in that, in that session. You're not loading your entire, 
you know, file systems worth of previews that you may have made in a catalog. Um, and the beauty of that is obviously that moves a whole lot faster. Um, but basically what I've done is I just do everything in a session. So every new job I create a session for and just bring the photos into the capture folder and start working. And mm. I just organize the folder structure on my computer and hard drives and, and cloud the way that I want to. Uh -huh. um, and that's essentially replaced the catalog function of capture one for me. Um, cool. but yeah, that sessions sessions are, are incredibly useful and I don't know if they only came around just for tethering to be easier. It is technically the only way you can tether in capture one. Um, uh -huh. but yeah, it's just usefulness as, as a workflow option is also just top of the market in my opinion. So, and then I've also heard that like simply pulling in, especially Fuji, I believe in particular, um, but just mm. simply pulling in the, the raw image and just the way that the app interprets color is just so much better than Lightroom. Like just kind of the default um, yeah. way that it interprets things. I know specifically for Fuji, I believe Capture One is really the preferred option for Fuji shooters because in Lightroom, I think there's actually some issues with color interpretation. Yeah, I, re I remember hearing issues with color and um, what was it? Sharpening. It was like whenever Lightroom would sharpen, it was getting some weird artifacts. Um, and it's just Great. kind of the way the RAFs files are structured. But yeah, Capture One handles them flawlessly. Um, they also now have the film simulations that a lot of Fuji cameras have as uh, profiles that you can select uh, nice. in the raw. They're not like exact, but they're very, very close uh, matches to what Fuji has built into the camera. Mm -hmm. um, and so you can kind of, if you were shooting with what is one of them, like classic Chrome or something like that, if yeah. you're shooting with that out in the field, and you want that look on your raw file, you can select it and capture one and still be working on a raw file. Um, so yeah, I would generally say I prefer capture one's color interpretation um, to Lightroom's. Um, I, I would say, honestly, it's to be expected. Capture one is made by phase one and phase one makes the $50,000 medium format cameras. <laughs> yeah. They, they have an arm, not just in consumer photography, but also in like um, fine art and uh, reproduction and like archiving. Like they have this whole other arm that's all about pure accuracy, color response, perceptual response. They're really good. Their team is just uh, it, a whole bunch of wizards. So I, I think they kind of, earn the right to be better if that makes sense just because they're kind of they're focused on their one thing you know adobe at the sure. end of the day has a million different products that they're also focused on and oh yeah i think the interoperability <laughs> of adobe like their ecosystem is certainly worth uh something but yeah i mean if if you're just you know this is what you do you work on photos Mm -hmm. My workflow is capture one to Photoshop back to capture one. And that's, mm -hmm. that's how my whole photo process works. Uh, the interoperability of, of the Adobe ecosystem isn't all that important to me for, for my workflow anyway. <clears throat> and then lastly, I do want to talk about thumbnails. Um, have you 
looked into YouTube thumbnail strategy at all or followed any of the the accounts on Twitter that kind of break so, down these thumbnails and stuff? And is that what we is that how we met, I think, or whatever? No, I think you were commenting on no, something. No, I think I don't remember. I'm trying to remember the thread we met on. I want to say it was something about display tech. Okay. Yeah, I don't remember. But um <laughs> and it was also but, on the other account, I think, the Golden Hour podcast account, maybe. Yeah. Anyways, I think that's matter. how you reached out initially. But um, yeah, I mean, I've seen some of the debate on Twitter. I don't, I can't say I know much, you know, to contribute to the conversation, but I have seen like the interesting debates, especially as of late of like trying out thumbnails and like changing them later after the video is posted to see the effect on views and what people pay attention to. I yes. think I, the one I most recently saw was like Tyler Stallman's post on it where he had like three different thumbnails that he uh-huh. was polling. Um, yep. But yeah, I can't, I can't say I really know much as to the psychology of, of why people click on a video. Um, I don't know the, maybe I can speak from just a, a consumer of YouTube more than anything. <laughs> uh, yeah. There's some, there's some really great accounts out there. Um, are you familiar with Jay Alto on Twitter? No. Um, I'm not. So I'll, I'll send you his, uh, on, on Twitter, I'll send you a link to his account. It's at J it's at the J Alto. Yeah. So he's a, he's a thumbnail graphic designer and he has these great threads where he kind of breaks it down. Um, how like why people do it the way that they do it. And um, anyways, it's a completely different way of thinking because from a graphic design standpoint, some of these look pretty cringy and terrible, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of philosophy behind them um, in terms of color, the use of color, um, the, the cleanness of it, and just making sure that exactly the action that's, you know, needing to be shown is, is uh, front and center. Um, I don't know. I just, I find it fascinating and I personally want to figure it out for our niche in the filmmaking space. Cause I feel like the Mr. Beast kind of style, um, doesn't necessarily work, uh, in our niche because it's Is too silly. Kind of like the really expressive like face and mm-hmm. which I'll be honest, that's maybe been a subtle, uh, a thing to push me away from trying to dive into YouTube too much because I, that is like a common thumbnail to like style that I see. And I'm like, do I, do I have to make like a face or something for my thumbnail? Like, is that the way I have to engage this YouTube audience? And I don't, (laughs) it's like not something that I would want to do. And then I'm wondering like, well, is it the only way to be seen? Like, is this, cause it is the first step. Like someone sees the thumbnail and they decide yeah. whether they're going to click on the video. So it's like, I don't know. It's, it, it's definitely much, much like any social media algorithm. It, it is playing the game for sure. Um, yeah. I, I'd be interested to definitely read more on like what the psychology is here. Um, Cause it, so it's I, certainly something I don't fully understand. I'm so I'm personally doing a lot of research on this uh, for myself because I actually feel like there's a huge hole in the niche that I've been a part of in the camera filmmaking niche. People have basically gotten everything that they wanted. The Sony cameras are great. The Canon cameras are great. All the cameras are great now. 
So now I think there's a hole in the market for entertaining and informative and educational videos that don't necessarily have anything to do with cameras, but are more about the the premise of the video. For example, yeah. this weekend, I'm shooting a wedding this weekend for a close friend of mine, um, but I'm going to turn it into a, kind of a game. So like I'm doing a same day edit. Uh, so I have okay. to basically shoot the whole thing and have it done by the time that the reception happens. And we're going to show the highlight film that I make at the reception to the bride and groom. And instead of using like fancy good cameras, I'm using a cheap point and shoot camera, the Sony ZV one, which actually is pretty amazing. Um, yeah, it's an all around camera. <clears throat> so like, nice. I'm kind of setting up a premise. I'm executing it. There's like tension and there's a reason to watch to the end to see if I actually achieve this grand goal, you know, or whatever, but hopefully throughout the process, I can kind of share how I did it and kind of teach people what I'm doing and why I'm doing it that way. But then it's also going to be entertaining and there's a hook in that whole concept that hopefully gets you to watch from the beginning to the end. So like nobody's, I feel like nobody in our niche is really thinking that through except for a couple of people. And I do think in the filmmaking and uh, photography niches on YouTube, you kind of have to take yourself a little bit serious, a little bit more seriously in terms of the thumbnails. Like you don't have to do a crazy face. Like MKBHD doesn't do crazy faces for every single thumbnail that he posts. Um, he's in it because every time I see Marquez Brownlee, I want to click it, you know, cause I know his face, that is his branding. Um, but like, he's not being cr- crazy, crazy with it for everyone. And then not only, that, but actually I'm looking on his channel. He doesn't have his face in every single thumbnail either. Um, if he's well, talking about so, a certain product. But that is a question I have too, is like, is that a luxury he gets to have now because of sure. where he's at in his YouTube journey? And do we get, like, if I started a YouTube channel, well, I mean, if I took my YouTube channel seriously, <laughs> is that something I have the luxury of doing myself or would I kind of have to play that game a little bit? at the start and kind of get an audience that knows what they're clicking on my videos for. Cause I mean, yeah, I'm going to watch a Marquez video any day of the week, regardless, because I, I know, you know, what he's creating, the quality uh, of his work. And like, I I know what I'm signing up for with his videos versus someone who, I mean, I've definitely, I've definitely clicked on videos that have the, like the really expressive thumbnails that I don't know who the creator is, but I, it caught my eye and I clicked it and, you know, maybe it was interesting to me. Maybe it wasn't, but it got me to click. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I, I think there's definitely some, uh, you know, some utility to that style. I think your idea is particularly interesting though, because it, it offers not just, you know, a reason for the audience to stay and be hooked and engaged. But I have a feeling you're probably going to grow quite a bit as like an editor, (laughs) even further past where you already are, just because, you know, pulling something off like that can't be an easy feat. And especially if you do it more or similar challenges like that, Mm -hmm. like it's just going to hone your skills to create, you know, compelling content uh, that's more concise. Like that's the, that seems like, what you're having to do there is really hone in on the important stuff to, to make something engaging. 
Yeah, I, I used to actually do same day edits uh, when I got started in my career. Um, I did a lot okay. of weddings. So I've done a handful of them, um, obviously not on camera and not for a YouTube video. But yeah, um, so I am confident enough in that. But uh, it will still be a challenge, of course. But again, that's goes back to what we said earlier, too, about how putting in a little extra effort really makes your work stand out and it goes the extra mile. And will book you more jobs. So um, I think it's important to think about what you're doing and find things that you're really passionate about and just sink your teeth into it and put the extra work in and spend an extra hour or two on something to really, you know, take it to the next level. Um, Especially if you want to grow in your career and actually like do this for a living for the rest of your life. So are you making good money now? Have you, do you feel like you're in a, a healthy state or is it like a lot of ups and downs with this? I mean, oh, yeah. I would imagine I mean, you're, it feels good now. It was definitely tumultuous during the pandemic. I it was weird because switching. So when I tried to like switch into retouching mm-hmm. uh, heavily, it was it was a pivot of like clientele because it was like, okay, how do I engage like realistically with this new base? Um, but it was it wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be just because the world was pivoting too. Um, Mm, And so what I saw a lot of was like brands recycling material that they hadn't ever used before and just had like in the coffers and they needed it to be freshened up or, you know, recycled somehow, like reshaped. So there was a lot of like from retouchers to graphic designers to kind of just everyone in remote post-production um, was kind of getting a new arm of work using material that had been shot and needed to be repurposed. So I, I found Elaine in some of that. Um, but it was also just kind of like working with the network of colleagues that I had built up to that point to see where I could fit in. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, it would have its ups and downs, but kind of as the market moves, so do you. And Lately, the market has been getting right back to work really uh, quite actively over these last like half a year, yeah. uh, these last six months. So it's it's been pretty consistent uh, as of late and I'm, I'm pretty comfortable as it is. My main thing though is, you know, as much as I, I love being a retoucher that hasn't pulled away any of my love for photography. So I do want to, to get back to shooting a bit more, but uh, yeah. I can do the whole thing. I just, yeah, I think now I have the luxury of being able to shoot more for just like what I want to create, um, and and less for just everything kind of being client purpose. Uh, but my big thing is also getting on some bigger sets because there are a lot of you know Arkansas is is cool, but there's not just a bevy of big productions happening and. You know, I'm a curious person by nature, so there's a lot of roles that I don't know about or don't understand and can't really experience here and kind of need to to be in places where those bigger productions are happening. So what I'm really hoping to do is also uh, assist more um, in other parts of the country and, and kind of up my knowledge a bit on the production side of things. Um, because that also feeds directly into post-production regardless of just making sure that workflow is seamless. Totally. Um, so having knowledge on both sides of it is is definitely very important. Are you looking at specifically moving somewhere else? Or? Um, 
just so my dream is to move to New York, but I, I primarily just want to travel for the time being, uh, wherever I need to go. Um, Mm -hmm. I have a, a big part of my network and client base is in LA. Um, so I think that's probably where I'm going to explore first. Um, Mm -hmm. but New York has had my heart for quite some time. So I, I do hope to ultimately end up there, um, being able to work there, but I'm also, I'm, I'm in no rush. I'm kind of past the point in my life where I'm trying to do everything like right now. I am. Yeah. I just turned 25 and I'm accepting that I'm, I'm actually young and I don't have to, <laughs> I don't have to complete my entire life's journey at 25. So I'm just taking it in stride, you know, 100%. I think that's some real maturity. And I think, uh, as a, as an old 31 year old talking to you, um, I've noticed that I've also begun to, uh, realize that I'm still also at the beginning of this, even though it's, it's felt like forever. Cause I've started, I started doing this when I was 17. So it has yeah. been oh, a wow. lot of my life. Yeah. So, um, but that being said, you know, there's no rush here. Like I've been trying my best to um, to stop my work at 4.30 every day. And like in the past, I used to kind of be like, well, I'm not done with this project yet. I'm going to make sure that I just sit here until it's done. And it's like, well, I could do that or I could stop and pick up tomorrow in the morning, you know? Yeah. And that's been a real um, challenge, but a, a good discipline to, to practice because um, – if you just keep working, working, working every single day, you're going to burn out. Eventually you got to take breaks. It's important. So hopefully you're taking breaks as well. I don't know if, if you, well, had yeah, that. I, I had the burnout period kind of early for me because I was, I was having that time period where I was just like, I'm going to do it all. I'll pull all the all nighters I need to like whatever. And I got to a point where quite literally my body physically stopped letting me do all nighters. Oh, wow. um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was just like, my, like my, I would just, I would fall asleep at the desk, like, and wow. it took two or three times of that. And I was like, Oh, okay. I can't do this anymore. And it kind of taught me one to start tempering the expectations of my clients, but, uh, also to kind of let myself have a, a healthy work-life balance. Um, so it's not something that I do very well still, but, uh, certainly something I'm working towards constantly because, uh, yeah. Ultimately, I, I kind of, you know, I have a pretty long term perspective of I like to look at life as how do I want this to feel when I'm like 50 or 60? Like, do I still want to be pushing this hard at that age? Will I have the patience for that? And if I won't, then what is it exactly that I need to set up as a structure for my life? that allows me to still be, you know, fruitful and still yeah. be creating the way that I want to, but not be hating the process of doing so because I've driven myself into this kind of box of just constantly working. So balance is really everything, you know. That's very wise. Yeah. I I don't know if you have listened to the show, but I've interviewed my dad a couple of times and he's a filmmaker and also a music producer. And he is 63, I think, and he's still just as creative and just as hardworking as ever. Um, he edited and directed an entire movie last year that went to theaters and he's working on another movie right That's now. Incredible. And like, I'm very inspired by that because 
he's been able to have that balance that I, I want, but then he also still has that same zest and energy and passion for creative work, even in his, his sixties. And he, he does tell me, he's like, I'm very passionate and motivated right now. Cause I know I only got another like 10 years left before I'm just going to be too tired. But, um, I doubt that honestly, he's so creative <laughs> and, uh, so awesome. Like, I mean, I tell him all the time, like Ridley Scott is still making movies and he's like in his nineties, I think. So, um, yeah, as long- Scorsese, like, yeah, Scorsese made the Irishman a few years ago. And I'm just like, how do you, 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 you implemented some completely new technologies while you were doing it. And that, uh-huh. that man is, he's still kicking around. There's, that's the dream for me is like, I still want to have the drive to do that stuff when I'm older. And I, I was seeing back then that I was quickly driving myself to like hating what I was doing. Mm. And that that's just not where you want to be there. There are more important things than just, you know, accolades of a career. Absolutely. Well, that's a great way to kind of close our conversation today. I really enjoyed this, Eric. And I think a lot of our listeners also will. Um, There's so many topics that we covered that have never been talked about on this podcast. So thank you so much for bringing up um, all these interesting and amazing topics with retouching, with photography, and uh, even with the work-life balance there. So that's super awesome, dude. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is a a riveting conversation and (laughs) I love having these conversations as you can probably tell. So anytime you're willing to have me back, I'm happy to, to, to jump back in another one. Absolutely. I would love to have you back. And, um, why do you think I do this podcast? I get to talk to people once a week. It's amazing. Uh, yeah, no, that's, that's an incredible, that's an incredible job. I, I don't know how you balance though all the things that you do because I mean I, I see you run the YouTube channel if I understand correctly you run several is that right uh, or no, have run several no I've hosted several so I gotcha. uh, I started one and then another company called Indie Mogul hired me in LA and then I quit and I moved here and um, so really the only things I got going on right now is my my YouTube channel on Dave Mays and then the the podcast. But with that, you know, I've, I'm, I'm shooting a course currently. So I just, I finished that today. So, I mean, anyways, I, I have help. My buddy Connor helps me edit and shoot. Um, and you know, if you just schedule yourself, I've learned as I've matured, like I really do need to have a schedule or, uh, mm-hmm. I just can't pull it off as much as I hate it as a creative person, you know, like yeah, I, yeah. I kind of fight that. I'm like, oh, I'm not finished yet. Or I want to stay up late. You know, it's like, I find that when I do stay up late and then I'm tired the next day, I can't get anything, anything done the next day cause I'm too tired. So it's just like, I need to just simply be rigorous with my routine, you know? Yeah. As hard as that is to say, but anyways, um, thank you so much, Eric. I can't wait to hopefully see you in Nashville. So definitely hit me up uh, when you come out yes. here, we'll get some, get some food, some tasty Nashville hot chicken. I highly recommend oh, it. I'm excited. I'm excited. <laughs> Awesome. All right. Everybody go follow Eric on Twitter and Instagram. It's at E Jackson. Is that right? Yep. E Jackson without a K. There's a story there, but maybe for another time. (laughs) Okay. You've intrigued me. What's the story? Uh, Okay. So when I first got an email address, my mom made me an email address and it was my first letter, uh, first initial middle initial and then Jackson without a K because that's how she did it. And that's how my dad did it. 
And so, yeah, then when I started making like handles for Instagram and stuff and eventually my company name, I was like, you know what? Jackson without a K is kind of cool. It is. And cool. I kept it. And Even that's, though that's what it is. So on your actual driver's license, it's E, it's two yeah, R's. It's Jackson. Yes. Yeah, so my first name is E R R I C K. Um, which is not how anyone spells it, um, <laughs> but awesome. that is how I spell it. And um, yeah, it, it's Jackson with a K, but every, yeah, my my business name is Jackson, still technically Jackson Photography uh, mm-hmm. without a K, E Jackson on Instagram, E Jackson 21 on Twitter. Um, Love it. Yeah, I, I go E Jackson wherever I can. <laughs> that's the best when you find a, a username that's available everywhere. I'm still trying to get the clean Dave Mays on Instagram. It's really frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll but, petition them in the DMS. <laughs> that'd be great. I don't use it enough for them to notice. That's the problem. I don't use Instagram as much as I use Twitter. So um, they're probably like, screw you, Dave. We don't want to give it to you. You don't even use our app, which I'm okay with because Instagram is slimy. <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 yeah. Sometimes so much better. All right, my friend. Thank you again for coming on. Can't wait to see you in person here in Nashville. Talk soon. Thank you, man. Talk soon.